Reevaluating the Theater of Combat. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Welcome to the program. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, you are in the audience to some of the finest and sharpest martial arts in the world. People that take a great deal of care and put in a lot of sweat equity into their craft. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at an essay that Professor Ben Junkins wrote in 2013. For those of you who are not familiar with Ben's work, he was a big supporter of this program in the beginning, and you can find all of his information just by going to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Ben. In all honesty, what happened is I began recording the podcast, and about a third of the way in, I realized that there wasn't enough of a backdrop in order to connect the dots. So what I decided to do was to go back, pluck out an original essay from 2013 that is titled, Reevaluating the Theater of Combat, a critical look at Charles Holcomb, popular religion, and the traditional Chinese martial arts. Ben investigates the emergence of the modern debate. In this setting, we're going to be in 2013, and you're going to be looking at the introduction to the field of martial studies, the very tip of the spear from an academic standpoint. I'm going to present to you Ben's essay of a heated debate between scholars, each demonstrating their cases, some quite forcefully, and unfortunately, sometimes they're providing results even though they are unfamiliar with some of the subject matter at hand. So let's get ready, settle yourself in, and let's begin reevaluating the theater of combat. Ben writes, For most of the 20th century, Western academics paid little attention to the Chinese martial arts. Popular culture did not elicit much interest from scholars who were much more engaged with ancient history and revolutionary politics. Still, there were always some voices who realized the importance of these topics, especially as they opened a window onto the motivations of both individuals and social groups at an almost granular level. Ben states that he likes to start the modern era of Chinese martial studies to a single publication, The Pathbreaking Book, written by Joseph Escherwick, titled The Origins of the Boxer Uprising, 1987, University of California Press. A quick backdrop on the Boxer Uprising and its importance, as they write at Britannica.com, quote, The Boxer Rebellion officially supported peasant uprising of 1900 that attempted to drive all foreigners from China. Boxers was a name that foreigners gave to a Chinese secret society known as the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. The group practiced certain boxing and calisthenic rituals in the belief that this made them invulnerable. It was thought to be an offshoot of the Eight Trigram Society, which had fomented rebellions against the Qing dynasty in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Their original aim was the destruction of the dynasty and also of the Westerners who had privileged position in China. End quote. In a review of Escherich's study, 
it states that the peasant agitators, the boxers, have been the subject of considerable misunderstanding by their contemporaries and subsequent scholars. Previous research has assumed a linkage between the boxers and early peasant rebels, in particularly the 18th century White Lotus. Escherich challenges the assumption that the boxers were the descendants of a long-standing sectarian tradition. Escherich maintains this approach obscures both the novelty of boxer rituals and the character of the workaday peasant culture that facilitated the spread of boxer ideology. Escherich argues persuasively that the boxers were loyalists, not rebels, whose anti-foreign rampage can only be understood by examining a nexus of socioeconomic preconditions and popular culture customs. At the same time, join in a contentious debate on Western imperialism in China. The Origins stresses the role of factors exogenous to the boxer's traditional world, notably the forced entry into China of Christianity and foreign consumer goods, as well as the impact of China's devastating loss in the Sino-Japanese War of 1895. This demanding study successfully links the little tradition of the peasant with the great clash of the imperial wheels that mortally wounded Confucian China. Written by H.R. Chauncey, Georgetown University. Well, Professor Escherich's work was so important, it won the prestigious John K. Fairbank Prize for 1987 and put the scholars and fields of study on notice that it was no longer possible to talk about popular uprisings in northern China without addressing the role of traditional modes of combat in shaping and organizing these conflicts. Obviously, Escherich's book did not focus exclusively on the martial arts. His main object was to write a history of the Boxer Uprising. In the process, he explained that to really understand the timing and origins of these events, one needed to have a detailed understanding of the social history of Shandong province in the late 19th century. An investigation of this situation led him to explore economic, political, social, and even literary factors. Obviously, popular religion was an important topic that needed to be addressed. Eshrick also devoted a surprising amount of his research to understanding the local combat subculture, including the role that it played in both the creation of militias and rebel groups. The first Western volume published by a major university press dedicated exclusively to the Chinese martial arts came out a few years later. In 1996, Douglas Wilde published The Lost Tai Chi Classics, which I have on my shelf, from the late Qing Dynasty. In addition to providing a translation and discussion of certain texts that are critical interest to Tai Chi Chuan students, while sought to situate these works in the elite and popular cultures of the Qing dynasty. This more nuanced understanding allowed Wiles to argue, as Tang Hao had previously done in the 1920s and 30s, that Tai Chi was the product of the 17th century innovation with the Qin clan, which was a military family, in Henan province. The art evolved and was passed down on throughout the 18th and 19th century before it was subsequently popularized and attached to the legends of Taoist mystics of later reformers. Douglas Wilde's research has helped to shape much of the current era of scholarship 
and his arguments have been critical to subsequent authors such as Stanley Henning, Peter Lorget, and Dominic LaRochelle. As a reference point here, it is a little different for many of us in the Chinese martial arts in particularly that we have to remind ourselves that both science and history can change, and with that change, our understandings change. Now, that is part of the reason, like in several of the episodes, we would make it very clear that lineages are not history. There's a lot of things put in and taken out of one's lineage that have nothing to do with history. Sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's economics. There's a lot of things that go into a lineage that don't fully represent history. Well, as we go into this next paragraph, Ben states that something very interesting happened between the publications of these two important works, the Tai Chi Classics and Escherich's The Boxer Uprising. A debate emerged in the field of Chinese martial studies. Escherich situated the traditional hand combat schools in a surrounding dominated by economic marginality and local heterodox, often millennial, religion. Eshrick never claimed that Plum Blossom, which is a subject that he does discuss at length, was inherently religious. Yet he did note that it and other traditional boxing styles often went hand-in-hand with millennial sectarian movements. In some cases, religious sections even attempted to use boxing schools as a recruitment device or as a social club. Nor was Eshrick the only one to make this connection. The Qing government had also noticed the same trend. Other elements of Chinese society have also been busy attempting to bridge these two areas. Between the final decades of the Qing dynasty and the Republic of China era, a number of reformers within the traditional martial arts community sought to link their fighting styles to various religious groups or traditions. There were many reasons for this move. Some teachers sought to use this renewed popularity of the anti-Qing revolutionary groups to promote their own arts at a commercial level in the 1920s and 30s. Other reformers, influenced in no small part by the Japanese model, sought to co-op both religion and hand combat in an attempt to bolster Chinese nationalism. Still, other students, such as Sun Lutong, seem to have been driven by currents in popular religion and a genuine interest in mystical attainment. Now, you can listen to the series on Sun Lutong by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Sun Lutong. While it was a popular move and one that helped the newly reformed hand combat systems to thrive in the marketplace, this new linkage was not without its critics. In fact, the growing association between the martial arts and religion, both Buddhism and Taoism, was fiercely attacked by certain reformers, especially those in the Jingwu and Guashu movements. Those organizations believed that the martial arts could only be saved through modernization and the purging of any mystical or superstitious associations. So we're witnessing two distinctly different theories about how to move the martial arts forward. Popular novels have portrayed martial artists as possessing mysterious qi powers from at least the time of the Ming Dynasty. Now, while some of these stories continue to sell well, these reformers warned that such images did nothing to promote the long-term health of the martial arts. When the Chinese martial arts were introduced to the West in the post-World War II period, most students simply accepted the Republic-era folklore linking the arts to ancient mystical practices. 
Historians and scholars, on the other hand, have been less willing to accept these stories. Douglas Weil argued at length in his volume that there was no evidence to support an ancient Taoist origin for Tai Chi Chuan. Instead, the art was the product of a military family in northern China, just as one might expect it would be. There may not even be one serious historian who currently believes that Tai Chi evolved anywhere other than the Qin village. However, as I noted before, if new evidence demonstrates a new hypothesis, scholars are usually the ones who will embrace it, as compared to hanging on to the old stories. But the larger issue of the association between hand combat and religion continues to be fundamentally contested. In fact, one of the first academic articles in the current era of scholarship argues that the traditional Chinese martial arts were at heart a religious and community-based exercise. This article argues that it was actually the reformers of the 1920s and 30s who were attempting to create an efficient and modern fighting system that were fundamentally deluded about the true nature of the martial arts. In our current era, writers like Peter Lorger, Stanley Henning, Brian Kennedy, and Dominic LaRochelle have been the most vocal in drawing these very big, bright lines between the practice of the Chinese martial arts and any supposed religious origin or spiritual influence. Each of these scholared individuals have favored a view that sees the hand combat schools as essentially practical in origin and corrupted or changed by later innovations in the Republican period. Individual scholars like Ashrick, Meir Shahar, and a large number of anthropologists have occupied a more carefully constructed middle ground. They have either drawn on extensive historical research to associate certain martial practices with popular spiritual currents in the Ming and Qing dynasty, or they have focused on the actual lived experience of martial artists in the 19th and 20th century. Well, as I always say here at the program, if nothing else, we always try to be the prosecution and defense as much as we can so we can try to take a fair look at things. Well, here comes a complete antithesis that the martial arts has a practical origin. And standing over there, we're going to find Mr. Charles Holcomb. It is because of Mr. Holcomb that I had to drop back from the original podcast I began recording to do this podcast so that you could better understand what this emergence of this debate was all about and where Mr. Holcomb stood on the other side of the argument. Charles Holcomb is a member of the History Department at the University of Northern Iowa. He is primarily interested in Chinese studies and popular culture. In the early 1990s, he wrote a series of articles discussing the origins and essential nature of the traditional hand combat styles. In the journal titled The Historian, Volume 52, Number 3, May 1990, Holcomb published The Theater of Combat, a critical look at the Chinese martial arts. Then in 1993, he presented this material to a more popular audience with the release of a work titled The Taoist Origins of the Chinese Martial Arts in the Journal of Asian Martial Arts, Volume 2, Number 1. For the sake of brevity, this episode addresses only the first peer-reviewed article. We should recognize that it goes without saying that getting a 20-page article on the Chinese martial arts published in a major professional journal in the early 1990s 
was a major accomplishment. Holcomb's piece reflects on many of the same concerns that arose in Esherick's work, popular religion, rebellion, and the social role of theater. It has also helped to establish the Chinese martial arts field as a legitimate academic pursuit. For that reason alone, Charles Holcomb should be remembered as an early pioneer of modern Chinese martial studies and that his work deserves careful consideration. In addition to helping shape an important debate, Holcomb's article has the virtue of being extremely clear and to the point. In fact, one may say that he is actually a little too forceful in stating his opinions and findings. Ben states that in his writing, he finds that this is an area that requires nuance and a willingness to compromise. Holcomb, however, is not afraid to take controversial positions and defend them forcefully. A close examination of his text often shows that there are very good reasons for many of his positions, but the nature of his writing makes it easy to read a lot more into some of his more strident claims that might be necessary. Ben suspects that this is a stylistic issue as much as anything else, but it may be one of the things that attracted so much anger from later critics. So what does Charles Holcomb attempt to accomplish in his article? We're going to put a bookmark in it right there. So far in this episode, we've evaluated the heated debate that started in the early 1990s in the Chinese martial arts studies realm. This happened among the scholars, the ethnographic researchers, anthropologists, and historians. We started with the introduction of a book that legitimized and changed the conversations of scholars in the field of martial arts studies, which was Professor Joseph Eshrick, who authored The Origins of the Boxer Uprising. This was an extraordinarily important topic at the time for martial artists because the boxers have been the subject of considerable misunderstanding by their contemporaries and subsequent scholars. Professor Eshrick argued persuasively that the boxers were loyalists, not rebels. We also recognize the work of Tong Hao, who is arguably one of the first professional historians of martial arts in China during the 1930s or so as well as Douglas Wilde with the Lost Tai Chi Classics of the Late Qing Dynasty. We finished, and this is where we're going to pick up in the next episode, where we introduce the work of Charles Holcomb, The Theater of Combat, a critical look at the Chinese martial arts. And trust me, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and that information is going to bridge us into the next podcast that I know that you're going to have a lot of interest in because this is where we're trying to find the martial artists. If we were looking for one, could we find one in the theater? Could we find one out in the mountains? There's a whole other podcast going to be dedicated to that. It's a really interesting historical perspective on society and many other aspects of the martial arts. Part two of this episode is going to include what does Holcomb aim to do in his initial work? Remember, he's the antithesis of what you might think of as, I would think of as practical thinking. But he presents a very interesting argument. Why does his work enrage so many scholars? And why, in some cases, will it fall eventually flat on its face? I will also introduce into the program Joseph Needham and Professor Stanley Hennings. 
We're going to be taking a real good look at what are the real driving factors between peasant rebellions, popular religion, and organized martial arts societies. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today, where we looked at part one, reevaluating the theater of combat. Make sure that you mark your calendar to come to the International Surete Conference in April of 2019. I'd really enjoy seeing you there. And if you want more information, just go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash surete, and it'll take you right over to the website. Take care, have a great practice, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.